This week, the Soviet internet that never was. Why with all the motivations, means, and uh, mathematics to be able to build a computer network do uh, the Soviet scientists stumble so badly? And a year after a huge earthquake hit Nepal, the threat of landslides means it's still not safe. What happens after the quake is just as important as what happens during the shaking. Plus, locating where words live in the brain. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 28th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Now, Sharmini Bundell has become a bit brain-obsessed this week. No, she's not turning into a zombie. She's been learning about language and where we keep all the words in our heads. The internet is full of ways to procrastinate. And this week, I have found a new one. It's an online 3D model of a brain that Alexander Huth at the University of California, Berkeley, sent to me. It's interactive, brightly coloured, and you can zoom around and click on different parts to make colourful words pop up. A perfect distraction. But it is actually serious science too. I called Alexander to find out how his team came up with it and what it all means. We wanted to map how the meaning of language is represented in the brain. So we took subjects, we put them in an MRI scanner, and we scanned their brains while they listened to hours of natural stories. So we're recording essentially blood flow at different points in their brain. And then we can use that to map out which parts of the brain seem to represent different concepts or different types of uh, words. And that's how you've ended up with this beautiful model that I've been playing with all week. You can click on different bits and see different words, but what did it actually show you? Right, so it showed us that these broad brain regions are really composed of uh, many small brain areas that seem to represent different categories of words. So there's some areas that respond to uh, social words or words describing people and social situations, and there are other areas that respond very strongly to words describing visual properties or numbers or many other things. And this is a much more uh, detailed map than anybody had ever seen before of the, of the semantic network. And are these all in particular language parts of our brain? So all of these areas are actually in um, a broadly distributed network that covers much of the what, what we might call association cortex. So this is sort of these high-level areas that are probably doing many different kinds of functions. So they're, they're not only doing language, they're doing all kinds of higher level cognition and so on. So once you'd got this model showing you sort of different words in different places, what did it actually tell you? So we found these, these very detailed maps, but then we also saw that the maps uh, are very consistent across subjects. So they look really similar across people. This is something very high level. This uh, language is something that is learned. So the fact that that is organized pretty much almost exactly the same way in, in each subject that we, that we studied was, was really interesting. But is there any logic to the organization? If it's the same across people, it, it seems like there must be some reason why numbers would be in a certain place. Yeah. So for numbers, we know that one of the major representations of numbers is in an area that's sort of involved in like spatial reasoning, uh, words describing visual properties of objects. Uh, there's a lot of representation of those words sort of near visual cortex. So there, there is some organization in that sense. How does this study differ from previous research? Most earlier research has focused on single words. And that, um, to me, that is, is a very limited way of looking at language. We don't communicate in single words. So what we've done instead is look at language in the natural setting. You know, that's much harder to analyze, which is why we have to use these sort of fancy computational models. 
but I think it gives us access to much more uh, detailed information about how the language system is organized. And when you say language in the natural setting, you mean stories um, used the moth, a radio hour, and podcast, so quite complicated language. She digs back in the front again, deep, deep, and she pulls out a pack of matches that have been laundered at least once. So compared to single words, that must be activating a whole lot more brain. And that's quite important if you're not looking for just that one language centre area. One of the things that makes language really interesting to study for me is that language gives you access to all kinds of other cognitive processes, right? So when you use language, you can make people do all kinds of interesting things in their brain, right? You can make them think about numbers. You can make them think about their childhood. You can make them make sort of value decisions. Any kind of thing that we can do with our brains, we have words to describe. So language gives you the whole brain, in a way. Language gives you everything. And how confident were you that your your map is correct, that that word does, in fact, activate that brain area in all circumstances and it's not just a random chance in this case? We tested the models that we built um, by using them to predict a held out data set. So we, we collected a second data set for each subject, which is them listening to another story, that we didn't use that data to fit the model at all. So the model hadn't seen that data in any way. And then we used the model to try to predict responses on that held out data set. And um, when we did that, we found that these models predicted quite well in uh, a lot of these brain areas. So you're taking uh, new stories and predicting what the brain will do. Uh, could it work the other way around? Could you take the brain scans and predict what the stories were? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's very interesting. So um, we, we call that a decoding model in general when we try to go from the, from the brain responses to the, the stimuli that elicited them. Can we decode language that somebody's hearing? And then even taking that further, can we decode language that somebody is just thinking, which would be very interesting both scientifically and medically for people who have communication disorders or, say, locked in. That might be a very useful sort of brain prosthetic device. So we, we're working on that. That was Sharmini Bandel talking to Alexander Huth from UC Berkeley in the US. He's put an interactive version of the model online so everyone can procrastinate with science. You can find it at gallantlab.org forward slash Hooth 2016. That's Hooth with a U. And we've also got a video giving you a guided tour through the Brain Dictionary, which you can find on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Coming up in the research highlights, the plant that bleeds nectar and the reason you might sleep badly when you're away from home. But first... It's hard to imagine life without the internet. And it's almost as hard to imagine what the world would look like if the internet had developed in a different way or with different priorities. Kerry has a story of a kind of internet prequel, internet minus 1.0, if you like. Science is full of positive results and not so good at remembering the null results, the experiments that were tried and that failed, or the ideas that were just too good to be true. The history of science has the same bias. Say you study the internet. You know it evolved in the US from a network called ARPANET, built by the military but used by scientists to share data. But the trouble is, there isn't another internet for comparison. Nothing to tell you if the properties of our current internet would always be the case for other internets, or if they're unique. Except for this one other idea. The OGAS project, or the All-State Automated System, in Russian that's the Obshoi Gosandarsvnaya Automatizirovnaya Systema, that lovely bit of Russian was spoken by Benjamin Peters, who's a communications scholar at the University of Tulsa. 
the All-State Automated System, or the OGAS project, is the Soviet internet that never was. Probably the most ambitious attempt to network a nation um, in, in the world so far. It's a real-time, was to be a real-time decentralized hierarchical network that would spread from one central computer in Moscow through hundreds of regional computing centers all the way down to as many as 20,000 local computing centers. Yep, that sounds a lot like an internet. So why was it never built? That question has preoccupied Ben Peters enough that he had to write a book to answer it. October the 4th, 1957, and the world's press announces the miracle of the age. The Russians had successfully launched the first satellite ever to circle the Earth, and Sputnik hurtles its way into space to make a date with history that heralds the dawn of a new era. The Soviet Union in the late 1950s was not a place that lacked scientific prowess. They'd launched the first satellite into space. They were doing world-class theoretical physics and maths. They had nuclear power. Under certain conditions, the Soviet Union is this extraordinary um, pro-science superpower. It just becomes an interesting question then. Why, at the height of the space race and the tech race, um, and why, with all the motivations, means, and uh, mathematics to be able to build a computer network, do uh, the Soviet scientists stumble so badly? It certainly wasn't because they didn't think to build an internet. For three decades from the late 1950s, various teams of scientists invented and then tried to pitch a nationwide network project to the government to streamline the economy and make it ruthlessly efficient. Their aim... Grandiosely put, uh, to upgrade Soviet socialism into a higher form of communism by networking the economy itself. This was a, a fulfillment of Marxist prophecy. The architects of these systems saw each factory, each productive unit of the economy getting a terminal, where they would log their productivity onto a computer, which would connect to other nearby factories and towns. All the way up to the local city centre, all the way up to the Moscow itself. Think of it as like a giant tech upgrade for what already exists. In fact, that was the very least that the scientists involved imagined their network would be. One man in particular had a whole lot of other ideas that went along with his vision. His project was the one Peters mentioned at the very beginning, OGAS. His name was Viktor Glushkov, and he dedicated his life to his beloved network idea. Some of the stories are, 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 are surprising. It's true that, for example, Glushkov collapsed after working repeated 20-hour days as the new director of the Institute of Cybernetics in Kiev in 1962. But, and, then, and then he, in fact, insisted on finishing a prize-winning book on computer programming, while strapped to a bed in the hospital. Glushkov had a bold blueprint for OGAS, full of futuristic ideas. Alongside the OGAS network, there were almost killer apps such as the following. Online banking, a system of electronic virtual currency receipts, natural language programming, paperless office was repeatedly promised. Mind uploading for people, individuals and collectives to be able to upload their memories and thus achieve a kind of virtual immortality. Okay, so you're thinking, no wonder nobody bought that. Even to a well-organised socialist would-be utopia, that sounds completely unrealistic. But Glushkov was a practical man, happy to scale down to more doable ambitions. At one point, instead of a nationwide scheme, he proposed a set of local area connections, and he was able to realise some of those. But the forces against Glushkov's larger plan were too strong. 
Peters sees an irony when he compares Glushkov's defeated project in the Soviet Union with the success of what was to become the modern internet in the West. The first global computer networks take shape thanks to collaborative uh, institutions and state funding in the West, while this contemporary projects fall apart due to unregulated competition among bureaucrats and institutions um, in the Soviet Union. In other words, you have the capitalists behaving like socialists and the socialists behaving like capitalists. The reasons the Soviets never got networked are not glamorous or cataclysmic. I think the simplest answer is um, institutional infighting, that there was an unwillingness to collaborate at the level of um, agencies, uh, across military industry, and within the state itself. And as a result, Glushkov's project however grandiose or scalable or pragmatic it might have been, um, faced genuine and consistent opposition at a number of different levels. But the things that overcame Glushkov, self-interest, clashing personalities, still defeat big projects today, says Peters. I thought this book was about computer networks and it turns out to be about social networks. His, his story is, is uh, humanising in the sense that I, I recognise in him um, uh, you know, something of the, the modern researcher scientist uh, who is uh, seeking to bring about some big science ambitious project and is simultaneously stymied not by the ideas um, but by the institutions. There's one question you really shouldn't ask historians. They really don't like it. But I asked Ben anyway, would anything have happened differently if the Soviets had invented the internet? I will venture a, a response. I think yes, it... it it would have changed things. Um, uh, it seems to me that the Soviet Union collapsed largely due to internal economic reasons. Um, and if this central attempt to reform the economy technocratically would have succeeded, then there would have been reason to imagine that the uh, history would have been different. That was Benjamin Peters, whose new book is called How Not to Network a Nation. You can find it on Amazon and other good bookselling places. Benjamin also writes a blog at petersbenjamin.wordpress.com and you can tweet at him, BJ Peters. Find a review of the book in this week's Nature, nature.com slash nature. On the 25th of April 2015, a devastating earthquake hit Nepal, killing thousands. Now, a year on, work is still underway to rebuild and repair the damage. But just because time has passed since the earthquake doesn't mean the danger has. Earthquakes can actually have quite long-lasting effects. This is reporter Jane Chu, who spent March this year travelling in Nepal. I called her up to find out how the earthquake's effects are still being felt today. So they can trigger a lot more landslides years after an earthquake and sometimes uh, even decades. So in uh, China, for instance, after the 2008 Winchuan earthquake, a lot of the new houses that were built after the earthquake were simply in the wrong locations. So they're very beautiful. They are all quake-proof. But some of the houses were built right below some of the fragile slopes. So several years, probably even now, uh, houses are still hit by landslides at a higher rate than before. So I think a crucial lesson uh, uh, from Wenchuan is that what happens after the quake is just as important as what happens during the shaking. 
So is that something we're currently seeing in Nepal, that there's still higher rates of landslides than there were before the quake? Yes, I think that people are experiencing more landslides, especially during the monsoon season. So in the last monsoon, for instance, in 2015, uh, the landslide rate was about 10 times higher than the average, and it was quite weak monsoon. And it's dry season, so it's not that bad now. But uh, in the trip I took to Langtang in northern uh, Nepal, along the valley, so we keep hearing songs of rock falls and uh, shifting slopes. So I think it's uh, quite obvious that there's a lot of instability in the system and uh, things are coming down. When we talk about these rock falls, how big are we talking? Are we talking about a few boulders that could demolish maybe a house? Yes, we talk, we're talking about massive, massive boulders. So we went to this town called the Kodari. It had really bad rock for during the earthquake. So we saw gigantic boulders, probably 10, 15 metres high, and uh, they're everywhere. I've never seen such a large landslide before. We saw amazing uh, landslides that ripped entire slope open all the way from the top of the ridge to the bottom of the valley. So we actually tried to cross them and uh, and then we thought, you know, there's no way we can walk around it. I was quite nervous. I thought, oh, I hope I'm not going to slip. And sometimes because we keep hearing, we know we keep having rock falls every now and then, a couple of times we had to run because we saw a few rocks coming down onto us. We have to run very quickly. What's actually the the mechanics of this? What's what causes this increased rate of landslides in the wake of an earthquake? So before an earthquake, the subsurface materials are quite tightly packed, and uh, after a strong shaking, they become quite loose. So they are expanding with holes and cracks in between. So. Now they are in a state that they have they can have more um, water penetrating into those holes and cause um, the slope to fail. What research has been done to look into these landslide risks in Nepal? So immediately after the earthquake, a group of uh, researchers rushed to install a series of seismometers and also other sensors to uh, measure water flows and also also weather stations. So they want to combine those data, trying to understand how the landscape evolved after the earthquake, so that they can also um, monitor the potential dangers. In, in the story, you described that they're really mapping the landscape in, in quite a lot of detail. How, how do you actually begin to do that? So one thing scientists uh, really need to know is um, how the landscape will change over time. So one way they can study this is to take high resolution pictures of the landscape uh, every now and then so they can trace uh, its uh, evolution. So uh, when I was um, in Nepal, I was with a group of researchers that use drones to map the landscape. What are the questions that are still open that researchers in Nepal are hoping to answer? So I think scientists um, are trying to understand how much rainfall can cause uh, a slope to fail. So now they can uh, actually monitor the propagation of rainfall into and through a slope. So they can understand, um, they can trace actually how the water are moving underground. They can link that process 
to the stability of the slope. And then they can also link that to some of the precursor signals that they can detect that precede uh, a landslide. They are trying to link all this process uh, so that they could forecast when and where a slope may fail. That was Jane Chu, who's based in Beijing, and whose trip to Nepal was supported by a grant from the Pulitzer Centre. Read her full feature at nature.com forward slash news. Still to come in the news chat, dodgy duplicate images in biomedical papers and watching Darwin's finches evolve. But before that, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. A plant has been found to bleed nectar from its injuries. If a plant is getting munched by a herbivore, say a slug, it'll normally heal its wounds pretty quickly. But the bittersweet nightshade has a different tactic. It keeps its wounds partially open and secretes nectar. This recruits sugar-hungry ants to the area, which fight off the plant's pests. Unlike other plants that secrete nectar, the bittersweet nightshade doesn't have special organs for the job. This could point to how these nectary organs first evolved. Check out the paper in Nature Plants. Struggle to get a good night's sleep when you're away from home? Blame your left hemisphere. Researchers scanned people's brains while they were sleeping somewhere unfamiliar. They found that signals of deep sleep were stronger in the right hemisphere than the left. Playing sounds into the right ear of study participants, which is rigged to the left-hand side of the brain, disturbed their sleep more. But these differences between hemispheres went away when their subjects got used to their new bedrooms. This suggests that the left hemisphere keeps watch in new and potentially dangerous environments. That study is in Current Biology. Time now for our news chat and Dan Cressy joins us in the studio. Hi Dan. Hello. So results have just become available from a big bio study looking at a whole raft of different papers. And what they're actually looking at was dodgy images of some kind. So this is a study showing that one in every 25 biomedical papers seems to contain an inappropriately duplicated image. Uh, This is in some ways the easiest kind of inappropriate image to spot in a paper because you look at it and go, that one looks like it's the same as that one and they claim to not be the same. So there's clearly a problem there. So when you say inappropriately duplicated images, do you mean people are copying each other's images? No, this is within the same paper. So the same paper from the same team will have two images within that paper that are actually the same, although they're listed as not being the same. That seems like quite a strange activity. It seems almost like plagiarizing oneself. Why is this happening? Well, one of the big questions with this is, what is actually going on here and what's the intention. So in some cases, this might be a researcher just straight out trying to commit fraud, not having found what they claim they found, and trying to fake that by saying that one of the images they have got is something else entirely to prove their point. Equally, it might just be a simple error. Someone has just put the wrong image into their paper. So this study doesn't tell us about that particularly, but it does mean that around 4% of biomedical papers, at least the ones that were looked at in this study, have a problem. And that is maybe something that the community needs to address. 
Is this something that affects the entire community or are there some journals which are kind of doing a good job of stamping this activity out? There are certainly differences across journals, this study found. I mean, the authors looked at really quite a massive number of papers. They looked at over 20,000 research papers. And in some journals, there were 12% of papers that seemed to be problematic. So like one over the one in 10 papers has some sort of issue with them. Whereas in other journals, um, some of which have screening programs to try and weed this stuff out before they publish, it was less than 1%, much less than 1%. It, it seems a bit like there shouldn't need to be a screening process. It sounds like the kind of thing you should just be able to see, oh, figure three is the same as figure one. How, how come it's slipping through the net as it is? Well, in some cases, these things might be really obvious, but in other cases, they're not necessarily. I and mean, this, is, this is an ongoing issue, and there's lots of discussion in the journal community and amongst researchers themselves about how much you can stamp this stuff out and how much you're ever going to be able to detect this. And the other issue is if people really want to commit fraud and are going to be really clever about faking images, you might not find it even in an analysis like this. So one in 25, I don't really have that much sense of how to place that. What, what's the reaction been to this? Do some people think it's very high or lower than they expected? The reaction depends to some extent on how much you've looked at this already. I think some people are very surprised by this and they say, how can there possibly be so many problems that can be spotted in such a num huge number of research papers? And we're talking hundreds of papers just in this sample. Other people, the kind of people who've been saying for years that journals need to do more to deal with issues like this, will be unsurprised. And some of those people say that actually they think the true figure might be even higher. On now to a slightly less controversial biology story regarding Darwin's finches. Now, before we look at what this study was concerning, just a brief history lesson. What are Darwin's finches? Darwin's finches are a really iconic example of Darwin's theories. They're not actually as important to Darwin's creation of those theories as a lot of people believe. He barely mentions them in most of his writing and the current thinking is they really didn't shape his beliefs. But they're a really great example of what he was trying to say with his work because they have loads and loads of different sized beaks on different species, different sizes, different shapes. And these beaks allow them to specialise in eating different things. So what happens is the ancestor of these birds arrives in the Galapagos and as they spread out across the islands they find different things that they can eat, be that insects or seeds, and they adapt to those food sources by evolving beaks of different sizes and different shapes. Now none of that is really contentious, it's just a nice example of evolutionary history. But in this paper they were looking at something a bit more contemporary. Yeah, this paper is great because researchers are now being able to not just observe these changes on the birds, but to look at the actual genetics underlying them. So previously a team has identified the gene that controls the shape of these bird beaks. And last week they announced that they've also discovered the gene that controls the size of those beaks. But are the bird's beaks actually currently changing? Yeah, and this is the other great thing that's described in this paper, which is that they see this happening in action. They see this gene actually working. So they looked at a particular population which experienced a drought. And what seemed to happen is that in one particular species, the birds with larger beaks were less likely to survive. The birds with smaller beaks could go and find really tiny seeds or something else that allowed them to keep going and get through. And afterwards, the researchers looked at the genetic makeup of this particular group and they found a signature for this gene which they now think is important in controlling the beaks and they can see that change. 
So have they actually discovered anything new about the genetics of these finches, or is it just our ability to watch watch these developments in real time? Well, they have pinpointed this specific gene that they think is involved. And as one of the people we quote in the story says, on the one hand, it doesn't change anything, but on the other hand, it changes everything. Because we're not just saying anymore, we see this evolution happen, but we're saying we can see it happen genetically. And this is another great example of uh, some people who say that evolution isn't true say, you can never see it happen. It's like, we do. We see it happen quite a lot. And now we can even show you the genetic basis behind that change. Dan, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. If you want to read more about those stories and others, of course, please go to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week. Tune in next time as we search out the dark reactions of chemistry. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you dropped us a review on iTunes. It would do wonders for my self-esteem. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>